0: I said, guys, thank you for everything you've done. They, they gave me the last rites when I came to the emergency room. There was a priest there gave me the last rites. And uh, I said, you know, you guys have been great. They sort of got me under control with some drips and that sort of thing. And I said, but look, I, I got to go and I got to get back to, you know, America and get my heart transplant because it's time. You know, now it's definitely time. And the Italians, you know, they're such amazing people. Um, they tried to talk me out of it, and then they basically just said, okay, well, if this is your decision, and they left my IV in, and they gave my friend, who was at the medical meeting with me, a bunch of preloaded syringes full of resuscitation drugs, and we got on a commercial um, flight, and he sat next to me and, and, and flew back to the U.S., and I went straight into the ICU, and um, three weeks later, I had a new heart. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners, experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl, Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos, meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Menken, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route.
1: All right, welcome back. Imagine losing your father at 14, losing your brother a decade later, and looking down the barrel of the same heritable heart condition that killed them both. Imagine learning in your first year of surgical residency that your continued existence will depend on a new implantable device called an ICD, a device so new that you will likely be the first surgeon in the world to have one implanted. A device that will allow your life to continue, but most likely put an end to your surgical career. Well, that's exactly what happened to today's guest, one of the nation's renowned transplant surgeons, Dr. Robert Montgomery. Robert has performed over 1,000 kidney transplants and his research has advanced the field in areas such as desensitization, multiple organ transplants, gene and cell-based therapies, and perhaps most famously, domino-paired donations. If that's not enough, he is also credited in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most kidney transplants performed in one day. Oh, and one more thing. Robert is also a heart transplant recipient, a heart transplant performed by the very surgical team he hired and currently leads as director of the Langon Transplant Institute at NYU. And what's with the Ava Maria intro? Well, that's Robert's wife, world-famous opera mezzo-soprano Denise Graves. Get ready for a wild journey of an episode. With that said, let's get started. Bob, welcome to the show. We've been really excited to have you today. This is going to be a lot of fun this hour here.
0: Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you inviting me.
1: Give us a little idea about your family history, um, especially with cardiomyopathy, and how that plays a role in where we're going to be heading today.
0: Sure, sure. So, um, you know, my, my dad died when I was 14 years old of uh, cardiomyopathy, dilated cardiomyopathy. At the time, they thought it was probably a, a post-viral um, cardiomyopathy. Um, I was an intern um, at Johns Hopkins in surgery and um, I, it was about two in the morning and you know, I was on call in the hospital and I, and I got a, a phone call from my sister-in-law um, telling me that my brother had dropped dead at age 35. Um, and he was water skiing and, and let go of the rope. And, um, uh, we did an autopsy, had an autopsy performed. And, um, actually I, I had his heart sent out to our, our pathologists and they basically connected the dots between my father and, and him. And we realized that we had a big problem on our hands um, and that this was clearly a genetic disease.
1: And place us, what year are we talking about? Where were you in residency? That
0: was 1987, it was my first year, so I was an intern.
1: You you were told that you needed something pretty early on. Um, This is an ICD, tell us what this is and why this is pretty unique for you at this time.
0: Yeah, an ICD is a implantable defibrillator And basically, you know, it monitors your heart. And if you develop a malignant type type of arrhythmia, um, it will deliver a shock, 30 joules of energy to your heart um, to um, get it back into a normal rhythm. In 1987, you know, those were the very early days of the development of this device, which was actually invented at Johns Hopkins. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I uh, pretty quickly got on a treadmill um, after my brother died. um, He was doing something very strenuous at the time. Um, And, you know, just to look at my heart at that time, it looked fairly normal. But when I got on a treadmill, I developed a really concerning um, arrhythmia. Um, And so they felt uh, my cardiologists felt very strongly at the time that I needed one of these devices. Um, And at the same time, they delivered the news that they didn't think that this would be compatible with the life of a surgeon and that I should start thinking about another profession. Um, Again, these were during the early days, the devices were like the size of a Coke can and had to be implanted in the abdomen. And I had to have a, 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 a thoracotomy or my chest opened and patches put around the heart, which were the capacitors that mm-hmm. delivered the shock across the heart. Um, so it was very rudimentary back then, you know, now it's, it's a, a small device that people wear that, that looks just like a pacemaker up in their shoulder. Um, and um, it's, you know, it's put in mostly you know, non-invasively, they just have to make a little pocket to put the actual device in. But back then it was a big deal. And they also thought that, I was the first surgeon in the world to have one of these devices ah. implanted. And so the company, there was only one company making them at the time. And they felt that the some of the equipment that we use in the operating room would be sensed by the defibrillator and would shock me inappropriately, you know, during an operation. So it would, it would, they were, they were pretty gloomy days for me, as you can imagine.
1: I mean, how'd that feel when they told you, you're probably gonna be the first surgeon to have this? I mean, it, it, that, cause you are probably looking at what looked like the end of your, your career before you even got started. That's yeah, thankfully not what turned right. it out, but.
0: That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it was devastating news. Um, but, but, you know, by the same token, you know, it was, um, a bit of hope, you know, that, that, uh, could be offered to have sort of a, um, guardian angel, you know, that could, you know, prevent me from, uh, suffering the same fate as my brother
2: so how did you make the decision to though to go forward in surgery even though you knew there was potential risk or you just didn't know what the risk really was
0: the, the chairman you know of surgery at Hopkins at the time and my surgeon my heart surgeon who put the device in you know brought me into the office and talked to me and you know and said well you know what do you want to do and I said I want to be a surgeon you know and at the time, I was, I was preparing to actually go over to um, Oxford, England, and work in a lab for a couple of years. So they decided to just sort of, um, you know, defer this decision and, you know, said, go ahead, go into the lab and let's see how you do over the next couple of years, not knowing whether, you know, my heart would really deteriorate rapidly. Right. Um, and, and then we'll see. When I came back, you know, I actually stayed there three years and got a PhD. Um, and when I came back, actually we went to the electrophysiology lab and I took, we took all the equipment that's in the operating room into the electrophysiology <laughs> lab and, and they put a magnet on the device to um, sort of get uh, the perspective of what the device was seeing Mm -hmm. And there, there wasn't any interference from, um, you know, the cautery that we used to make incisions and that sort of thing. Um, because we knew that if you, if a patient had one of these devices and you use that instrument, you know, while you were doing surgery on them, it would cause it to go off. But, um, I was grounded, I guess. And, and, you know, it, um, it turned out it was okay. So I carried on. Interesting. Um, and, and, you know, and I would say the next, you know, 20 years were sort of um, periods of relative normalcy punctuated by near-death experiences, you know, along the way. Um, but I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, you know, I, I never really thought that I would live past, you know, the age that my brother was when he died. And I think you know that's had a big impact on my life and and you know how I've lived it.
1: Yeah. Is he your only sibling? Was it your only sibling?
0: No. So um, I have uh, two other brothers, and my oldest brother is unaffected uh, by this, and um, the uh, brother who's who's uh, just older than I am um He progressed, he has it, and he um, went on to uh, uh, develop um, heart failure um, and had a transplant 25 years ago hmm. um, and he's still alive and um, he's, he's a dentist and he, he's still practicing.
1: Bob, so take us back to this operation. I mean this is certainly nothing minimally invasive and what was the recovery after this? How long did this because Obviously, anyone listening who's been in residency, there's not a lot of downtime in residency. So yeah,
0: so so we timed the operation to coincide with when I finished my second year of residency, um, and so you know basically I I finished that year and went straight to the operating room, um, had the surgery, and then I was going over to Oxford, and I took some time to um, recover. Um, and, and I also, um, you know, went to Switzerland on my way to Oxford and kind of uh, was up in the mountains for a couple of weeks. And that's kind of where I recovered.
1: So it really was less than a month then, of, you know, the physical recovery. Um,
0: yeah.
1: How long? Yeah, till you it, it was about
0: a month. That's right. Because they had to open my chest. So it was a it, it was kind of a big deal.
1: So when were you able to resume your residency?
0: Well, so I went straight into the lab um, and I was there for three years and then, you know, did a PhD and, and came back um, and, and started the residency again in um, 1991.
1: So probably, I guess, imagine during that, that time of going for your, your PhD, that might have been the path for you, right? There must have been a time where you said, okay, maybe I'm going to try to go back on to a clinical path. Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that I was really interested in research and at Hopkins at the time, you know, the, the surgical residents um, usually did basic science research uh, during their residency for a couple of years. So I I was still really kind of on the path. Um, But yeah, we were just seeing how things were going to go. And soon after I got to Oxford, actually, my device went off three times. Um, And it was very scary. There was a car accident right outside of our flat, you know, in in Oxford. And I ran out and climbed into the back of a car, an overturned car to try to extricate a baby that was in a a child's, you know, uh, seat. And um, I guess that initiated a dysrhythmia, um, the adrenaline from that and the thing went off three times in a row. Um, And, you know, as I said, it was, you know, it was hard to imagine at that point how I was gonna make this work because there I was, you know, in the kind of position that I would likely find myself in the future, in the operating room, you know, where things are happening that are um, unexpected and, uh, you know, I basically became immobilized by you know, this uh, device shocking me. Right. Um, but I talked to my cardiologist on the phone at the time, I was pretty devastated. And he said, you know, I think, Bob, this is, this, you've just seen the worst you're gonna see. And I think those words were uh, prophetic, actually. Although there were some rough times to come but in terms of how it impacted on me psychologically um i think that was a low point
1: did yeah. you get any pushback from anybody in the program that they didn't feel this was a good idea to come back
0: i mean i know there was controversy and i know that you know there were conversations that i wasn't um privy to but um i had a really strong advocate who you know was the chief of surgery and i think he just you know said we're just gonna keep a close eye on them. And of course I was a resident, so I wasn't you know, the person in charge of the operation. So there was that sort of buffer. And then I got back and got into the operating room. I had to completely change the way I thought. And I had to really re-engineer my, um, my response to stress and um, turn off all of the adrenaline because that's what produces the arrhythmias, that and really, you know, severe or really extreme exercise. So I had to really just kind of let go of all that. And, you know, it actually made me a much more effective um, surgeon. And everyone always said, you know, it's like you have Valium running through your yeah. system, you know, you're just so. Um, able to deal with kind of whatever comes your way yeah
2: coach that what were some of your coping skills how did you actually turn down the adrenaline rush
0: yeah so it's i guess it's sort of a a self-programmed biofeedback you know Hmm. i i kind of went through this hierarchical you know discussion in my mind like what's the worst thing that can happen to me well i could suffer my brother's fate right and once I sort of accepted that, then anything below that didn't seem that bad, you know? And so, you know, when I was facing a really stressful, you know, situation, I'd just kind of say, well, it's better than dying, you know? Hmm. And, um, and I was able to just really kind of, um, you know, dial it down. It's interesting because, you know, my nieces and kids have asked me that question because, you know, this, um, is in our family now and it's, you know, in this next generation too. And, um, it's really hard for me to describe exactly how I did it, but, um, you know, if you just sort of accept that you're probably not going to live that long, it can actually be very liberating, um, you know, because the little things that are, seem big, seem to loom big in our lives, actually become pretty small when you look at it that way.
2: Right.
0: And 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 it just, you know, that kind of worked for me and has continued to work for me. And every day I wake up, I'm just surprised that I'm still around. <laughs> Amazing.
1: Well, uh, we're gonna fast forward here in just a moment, but one more thing on residency in the early nineties there, was it, this is a general surgery residency, but specializing in transplants was, what did the career path look like for a a transplant surgeon at that time? And how early did you have to make the decision? That's what you were going to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much decided the, the work that I did over in Oxford in the lab, you know, was all transplant biology and immunology. And I had decided at that point that I wanted to do, um, transplantation. And so you have to do a, A general surgery residency, which is usually five years, and then you have to do two years of of your fellowship, your transplant fellowship. I also did three, you know, three and a half years um, in the lab with a PhD, and then I did a postdoc too, which is kind of after you do a PhD. You know, if you're serious about science, you spend a couple of years in a lab as a postdoctoral fellow. And I did that in human genetics about that interesting yeah
2: so we non-transplant surgeons always thought transplant was the most stress related surgery of all did you find that did you did you find that as you went into it you had to to dial up the the biofeedback and the coping or was it the opposite that you found no i really have control over this
0: yeah i mean you, that 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 is a great advantage to feel like you have control over it and to not be shaken by things that happen, you know, that go wrong. It makes you way more effective, I think. I mean, I I can get up for, you know, a big operation and get excited about it without um, developing sort of a, you know, maladaptive physiologic response to it. Hmm.
1: That's a very fancy way of saying you know how to calm your nerves. <laughs> <Is there> any <laughs> any secrets to that?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of internal work. It's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of d- disciplining your mind really. Um, that's Has really
1: meditation good. or anything else been a part of that or is it just.
0: Yeah. Like- and, but a, a lot of it is just done consciously, you know, um, in, in the moment, you know, with different things that are stressful and just trying to release the, that stress.
1: Well, let's uh, move ahead here. Um, well, we're going to bounce around a little bit, Bob, because there's a lot to talk about. So let's bounce ahead and then we'll come back. So take us to Patagonia in 2017. Tell us what you were doing and
0: what happened. So I'm an outdoorsman and, um, I like to, you know, go to exotic places around the world and be out, you know, outside uh, hunting and fishing and, and hiking and uh, climbing. And so I was in Patagonia um, in the Andes um, on a trip um, with my two sons and a bunch of, you know, close friends. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't feel very good the first day and sort of cut the day early. Um, and everybody went out the next day and, and I stayed in, which was pretty unusual. Um, and I started to develop, um, rigers, which is a fancy name for chills, like bed, shaking chills. Um, and, um, I was having trouble breathing. Um, and, you know, I was texting my doctors and so on and trying to figure out what was had gone wrong. I thought maybe my my ICD had become infected and, you know, I had bacteria in my blood from that. Um, but as the day wore on, it became clear it was coming from my lungs. So that evening, my kids came home and, and um, from being out in the mountains and we went down for dinner and... Basically, um, you know, I, I just slumped over um, and uh, I was in shock basically um, from, from sepsis or having bacteria in my blood that was coming from um, my lungs, uh, really severe pneumonia. And it was an exotic um, uh, bacteria that comes from the hospital that, you know, I probably brought down with me that is um, resistant to antibiotics. It's now in my blood was suppressing my heart function. My heart function dropped down below 10%. And i found myself on, you know, to be in this tiny little hospital in the middle of nowhere on a stretcher, you know, with a, a, the pulmonologist who eventually flew down, um, from NYU and brought me back. Told me it was like a, you know, Korean War kind of vintage, um, you know, field hospital respirator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I basically spent um, uh, almost three weeks, you know, in a coma uh, there on on medications to keep my blood pressure up and you know with my heart failing. And wow. um, and then this team went came down when i was finally stable enough and um it took 24 hours actually in a small plane uh with a little mini icu to you know i was still on a ventilator to get me back to nyu unbelievable
1: so yeah was this like a meta, medical evac company that came down or
0: did- yeah exactly but i was really close to death you know it's it's a that that is a true miracle that i made it out of there
1: Do you have many memories of it or you were in a coma almost the entire ride?
0: (laughs) That's a whole story in and of itself. Um, My mind was working the whole time and I have these, you know, these wild kind of experiences that I had when I was in a coma. You could do another show on that. But um, yeah, it was, you know, I was very not aware of what was going on. I went to a different place really in my mind. So
1: and put ourselves in place right now, we're in 2020 here, summer, about yeah. halfway through here. So this is only talking about a few years ago. It's a lot that's happened since yep. then. Yep. Um, you got back and what did you learn when you got back to NYU?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I I learned just to make how it to... clear
1: Because I don't think we said this, you're at NYU now, so you're going yes, back that's to right. your
0: hospital with your colleagues. Exactly. I had just gotten to NYU in 2016. So this happened, you know in the first year that I was there, I was starting a new transplant program and this happened. So you can imagine. Um, but anyway, what, what I learned was I learned how to walk and talk and eat and drink again. Basically, when I awoke from the coma, I couldn't do anything. I was completely helpless. And um, so, you know, that was a really intensive kind of rehab. And, but, you know, within a couple of months I was back in the operating room, my heart recovered a bit. Um, The function went up into the 20s, but it never really fully bounced back from that experience.
1: Did you still have the original ICD from 87 at that point? No,
0: that had been changed many times over the years and then eventually moved up, you know, to where you are used to seeing um, defibrillators and pacemakers on my shoulder. I had an incredible amount when, you know, fast forward, eventually all this hardware had to be taken out when I had my transplant and you should, I mean, it was like a junkyard of, you know, wires and steel and things that, you know, that had been abandoned because these things wear out. And I had this for, you know, over 20 years. So uh, a very long time for an ICD. Amazing.
1: So how long after getting back to New York, did you
0: find out? Sorry, I had it for over 30 years. It was, yeah, because it was put in, in the '80s. Right, yeah. right, right, exactly. Yeah.
1: So, how long did you until you found out you were going to need a heart transplant? Tell us about.
0: Yeah, so I, you know, I there, there were a number of things that happened, but I'll 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 uh, get to the, the the I'll cut to the chase, which was, um, uh, you know, I I recovered. I was back to pretty a normal lifestyle. Um, and my wife and I were in um, Italy, in a small town in Italy, and I developed what's called a ventricular tachycardic storm, which means I, I kept going into, you know, these sort of death spiral um, rhythms, heart rhythms, and I would, you know, collapse and be unconscious, stop breathing, and then the device would fire and I'd wake up again and then you know 10 minutes later the same thing would happen and um so this is an extremely you know dangerous situation because these devices you know they work most of the time but you keep pushing them to this extent eventually it's going to fail and it had failed previously about six months before that um i i was at a broadway show and i had a sudden death where i collapsed and the device didn't work. And I had CPR for a prolonged period of time and external shocks and so on. And then they had to completely revamp the ICD, thank goodness, because when I was in Italy, I was really dependent on that, you know, um, capturing me and bringing me back to life each time. And so once I returned from there, I, I basically signed out against medical advice from this little hospital in Italy. And I said, guys, thank you for everything you've done. They, they gave me the last rites when I came to the emergency room. There was a priest there gave me the last rites. And uh, I said, you know, you guys have been great. They sort of got me under control with some drips and that sort of thing. And I said, but look, I, I got to go and I got to get back to, you know, America and get my heart transplant because it's time, you know, now it's definitely time. And the Italians, you know, they're such amazing people um, they tried to talk me out of it. And then they basically just said, okay, well, if this is your decision, and they left my IV in and they gave my friend who was at the medical meeting with me a bunch of preloaded syringes full of resuscitation drugs. And we got on a commercial um, flight and he sat next to me and, and, and flew back to the US and I went straight into the ICU. And um, three weeks later, I had a new heart.
1: Obviously a good friend. You have a lot of confidence in too. <laughs> Amazing. All right. We, I can't jump past this. Uh, cause I read about this, that Broadway show you were at, the show obviously stopped while they were doing CPR. Yeah, I mean, tell, tell us right. about that.
0: Right. So of course I was, uh, unconscious, but, um, when I woke up, you know, of course there were all these people around me and, and I, they were putting me on a stretcher. So that's how long I was out. You know, they had called the, uh, the, the rescue team and they had come and they were putting me on the stretcher when I they finally got my heart started again and um anyway when they lifted the stretcher up you know the show had stopped and everything and it's just so New York I got a standing ovation <laughs> <laughs> and and I just was waving and pointing you know and um they they uh, took me out now sadly my my mother's funeral was um you know the next day and i had broken ribs um from the cpr and and, you know and a lot of pain and obviously they were worried because the device hadn't worked right and you know it was going to need to be like supercharged and new wires put in and that sort of thing but i said look i'm sorry guys but um you know this was the second time i sort of left the hospital against advice but i said look you know i got to go to my mom's funeral you know so um if you don't mind my Electively. asking,
1: what did she pass away
0: from? What old age? She okay, was so in nothing, her nineties. Nothing yeah. on her side. With no, her. no, it was, it was my dad's side. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, man, that's, um, it's a hell of a time. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so here we go. We'll go back to Italy. You're coming back on American airlines or something. Hopefully they upgraded you at least as <laughs> <somewhat Yeah>. comfortable. <laughs> well, I couldn't tell anybody
0: actually, you know, they were, I'm sure they wouldn't have let me on. No, the they probably wouldn't, they right? You had an right. IV underneath my shirt. Yeah. God, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: how old were you at this point?
0: Um, um, well, I was uh, 59.
1: So, help us understand a little bit about heart transplant.
0: Think I'd know better, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just so we understand about heart transplants, um, it's it's very specific who can qualify for this, and there's not a lot of donors you know available especially right so just help us understand just how this works sure
0: way. i mean well it's so easy, easy to illustrate with my case i mean look i have to you would think after what happened at the um broadway show that you know that they would immediately have said to me it's time you know you need a heart transplant now i wasn't sick enough even though i had you know arrested and no uh, i uh, had this prolonged CPR. That's how bad the the crisis is, in, you know, organ availability. Um, it's a, it's a supply and demand problem. There's there's far more people on the waiting list than there are organs available. Um, so you know, because I developed this ventricular storm, uh, this tachycardic storm, that puts you into a high category. Um, uh, you know, for the allocation of organs so that immediately you know elevated me because that's considered to be a extremely unstable electrical situation with the heart so you either have to have complete pump failure and be on a device you know basically to keep you alive or this electrical severe electrical problem that will pretty rapidly you know lead to you dying um And so, you know, I, I went straight to the ICU and then I had been, you know, um, over the years involved in trying to, um, develop this idea of, um, using organs, um, from donors that were at increased risk of transmission of, um, viruses because of, um, usually the behaviors that, cause them to die, um, drug use, um, and, you know, various other, uh, uh, things that, um, can result in transmission of HIV, hepatitis, hepatitis C and hepatitis B. And, um, so, you know, over the years, I'd been starting back in the nineties, very involved in, um, trying to really understand what those risks were because I felt like they were more emotional than actual. And so we quantified those risks. We used a lot of those organs when I was at Johns Hopkins. Um, And then suddenly we had the opioid crisis and this sort of explosion and um, people dying from drug overdoses. And um, about 25% of those uh, folks who are um, overdose victims um, have hepatitis C, mm. and then there 's some risk you know that they could transmit other viral illnesses if they 've just recently been um, infected because we we have good tests um, to pick up you know these viruses um, and so when I was at Hopkins, we had just started you know a the first in the in the world um, protocol for using some of these hepatitis C um, positive organs that had only previously been put in hepatitis C positive recipients, Mm -hmm. instead putting them in hepatitis C negative recipients, because we had these new direct acting agents, these new antiviral drugs that had a very high rate of cure, um, you know, that were being used to treat, you know, primary um, hepatitis C. So, um, we brought that uh, protocol to NYU when I came in, in 2016 and we were doing a lot, we were using a lot of these organs. So from the people who were dying in the opioid crisis, half of those organs were being discarded because they were infected with hepatitis C or because of the risk that they posed. you know, that the perceived risk that they um, posed for HIV and and hepatitis B. Um, So, you know, basically I told my um, doctors that, um, you know, I I wanted to utilize one of those organs. Um, And so they very rapidly, because again, those were being discarded at a very high rate, found a hepatitis C positive heart for me. Um, and I got hepatitis C, um, started about, um, four days after the transplant and then took the drugs for, you know, the antivirals for two months and it was completely cured.
1: Amazing. We're going to get into this a little bit more in a little bit here, but when we're talking about a heart transplant, how much time are we talking about from the time the donor is identified and- what kind of window do you have to get this heart transplant? Yeah.
0: So, you know, it, the, the total time, you know, from the time when the donor's identified and the family consents to donation and, you know, when the organs are all, you know, in their new homes, it's, it's usually somewhere between one and three days. So
1: who, how did you first find out you were going to have access to a, a heart? Tell us about that. Who called yeah. So my
0: surgeon called me at four in the morning and um, said, and you know, it was amazing because he was so emotional and excited. You know, his voice was breaking a little bit and, and um, he said, um, it's as if you incarnated your donor. Um, you know, we have, we have a heart for you from a, a young man who, you know, died from a drug overdose as, and has hepatitis C. And, um, you know, I think it will be a good heart for you.
1: Did you ever learn so anything said, more about go. him or was it? Uh, no, yeah.
0: not, no, I haven't really. Um, you know, that's sort of up to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother, uh, you know, got to know his donor family, um, but uh, I, I haven't up till this point so we'll see what happens
1: so back to 4 a.m in the morning yeah your wife's there she's probably you know pretty excited but also nervous um what happened in those moments after that in those hours and
0: yeah i mean i was all i was just all excitement and i was you know i didn't have any um you know feelings other than like this you know whatever is going to happen is going to happen and good luck to you all you know this this one time it's uh i'm not going to have to like do anything (laughs) it's up to you guys you know (laughs) and um and you know put my life in the hands of the people that i had hired a couple years before i mean we just started our heart program in 2018 um and uh, sorry, 2017. So we, we were in our first year of, um, the, uh, program.
1: So if anybody's um, nervous, it might be, they're operating the a <laughs> boss here, you know, <laughs> right. right <about> stress.
0: <laughs> That's right. But the good thing was that I hired great people and they were very seasoned and they were, you know, um, just professionals and, yeah. um, They did such a great job and it wasn't easy. It was not an easy operation because I had all this gear inside me, you know, that they had to extract Um, and it kind of those leads that go down into the heart through the blood vessels start to stick to the blood vessel walls and grow into them. And, you know, it can be very hazardous removing all that junk, you know. Um, yeah, I think
1: for our non-medical listeners, you know, the idea of scar tissue can be really tricky for surgeons coming yep, back in that's right. or something else was done before. So yep. um, just makes and it all the more yeah. exciting for the surgical team. And extraneous yep. wires, sure. Yeah. So
2: you're in a kind of a unique position here because you see both sides at once. Uh, can you fill us in, those of us who've never done a transplant? From the four o'clock in the morning call, what is what's happening with the surgeon? Then it's the it's the beginning of your surgeon's responsibility too. So what's going through his yeah, mind? I mean, what-
0: that's interesting. Yeah, you know, you 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 kind of have a, a time um, that's set, and you've got that in your mind. And for me, I think actually they they took me down to the operating room around um, eleven a.m. Everything was happening very fast. Um, but you know, the team had already been up all night, you know, the guys who went out to get the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the whole thing had been in motion, you know, that's the amazing thing about transplantations. There's so many people involved in this, you know? And so even before I found out that I had a heart, you know, they had all been out working all night long. Like Mm -hmm. I had done countless times for countless years (laughs) and, um, And, you know, when you're the surgeon, you're, you've got your mindset, you've already rehearsed everything. It's all, you know, rolling around in your, your brain. Um, And you're working it out, like what it's going to look like, what you need to do. Um, And then you usually have 10 other things that you have to knock out before you go to the operating room, right? I mean, you know, life just keeps going on. And, you know, if you're in a leadership position, you're, you're thinking about the you know the whole enterprise um so i'm sure you know he's a my surgeon notter is uh he's a professional i'm sure he was doing a lot of other things and then you know when the time rolled around he went down and he did what he knows how to do
1: so what was the recovery like
0: um it was much easier than you know uh 2017 Hmm. Um, when I you know came back from Patagonia, that was the biggest challenge because again I, I had lost because of the, the the endotracheal tube in my throat i, I, I couldn 't eat or drink or talk and mm-hmm. had damaged my vocal uh, folds and um, so it was uh, it, it was a lot easier to come back from the transplant. I was working you know in my bed. Um, doing work, meeting with my assistants and administrator, um, you know, on post-op day three, kind of getting it back together.
1: You're kidding. Wow. That's <laughs> remarkable.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: you don't mess around,
0: Bob. Okay. Well, the, you know, look, like I had been living with this heart that, you know, wasn't working very well for a long time. And suddenly I had this great heart, you know? And I had blood like, you know, going everywhere in ways that I hadn't experienced. It was really invigorating actually. Hmm. Wow. Yeah.
2: Interesting. Didn't think of that. Huh.
1: So how long until you, cause you are back in the OR, you're you're practicing. How long before you're able to comfortably do that?
0: Yeah. You know, that took a while and that was a whole journey in, in and of its own. Right. Because, um, one of the side effects of uh, the mainstay drug that we use in transplantation is a tremor, and almost everybody gets it. Hmm. And you know, for the average person, they kind of get used to it. Although some people never do. Um, but it, unless you're, you know, a, a watchmaker or a surgeon, it's something you adapt to. And if you're either of those, it can be devastating. And, and so I really went on this odyssey for a year trying to find, um, someone who, uh, had an immunosuppressive regimen that they were using, um, that didn't involve this drug that causes this side effect. And, um, I eventually found that person and started on a different regimen, um, which I converted to, um, but unfortunately I had a a rejection once I did the full conversion. And so we backed off and I stayed on the, the other medications and just added a little bit of this drug in that caused the tremor. And it's sort of a dose dependent thing. And with just a little bit of that drug, I was able to, you know, not have rejections and not have a tremor. And so I really just did, you know, my first, um, transplant, this, um, past year. And actually my first patient was a guy who had had a heart transplant who was on that drug. And one of the other main side effects that it causes is in a third of the heart transplants by 10 years, it causes their their kidneys to fail. So I was doing a kidney transplant on this guy who was about 10 years out from his heart transplant, Um, you know, because of the same drug. It, It was very interesting. So that was my first time, uh, back in the operating room. Um, uh, and, um, I've been, uh, that was, um, uh, Oh, probably about, uh, six months ago or so. Um, and, and then, you know, and then, um, did it, did a bunch of transplants and then, you know, COVID hit. Right. So, yeah. Well,
1: um, yeah, we're getting close here, so we have 15 minutes left, so we're going to try to pack in a bunch of questions here, see what we can get out of this. Um, let, let's talk about kidney donations for a moment, because that's going to get us more into the availability of organs and that discussion we'll, that we're going to finish with here. But give us an idea. First of all, tell us what the paired um, domino um, protocol is for donating kidneys, how that was, you know, what your involvement was there
0: and how that's yeah. really been helpful. So, you know we've been really up until the opioid crisis, you know, the number of organs available from deceased donors has been pretty steady, not increasing very much despite all the public education and everything that has gone on over the past several decades. Um, you know, and there was a an increase, uh, sadly, you know, for transplant is sort of the silver lining. If there is one of the opioid crisis is, you know, people, we could save some lives, but, um, you know, we, we've been, I spent really my whole career trying to, uh, figure out new ways to, you know, expand, um, organ donation, um, and really, the, the area that seemed most likely to be expandable was living donation, um, because again, you know, deceased donation really just hasn't changed much. So I was involved, I was on the team that did the first um, uh, operation to remove um, a living donor kidney using minimally invasive techniques, a laparoscopic nephrectomy um, in, the, in the mid-90s. Um, and that made it easier. It made it, it decreased the impact on the donor. Um, the donors could get back to work much quicker and so on. And then um, in the early 2000s, I really was pushing very hard to try to um, help these people who had incompatible donors. There's two ways you can be incompatible with your living donor, either through your blood type or um, through these antibodies that you can develop if you've had a previous um, uh, transplant, or blood transfusion, or pregnancy—even—and um, you've been exposed to foreign tissue—you can develop an immune response to it and develop antibodies. Um, and so I've been, you know, very involved in developing new approaches to that. And and um, we had we had a young woman who um, in the late '90s who uh, had gone to a lecture. Um, about the new technique for removing the kidney laparoscopically. And she was actually a transplant coordinator from the Midwest. And she called us the next day and she said, I want to donate my kidney, but I don't, you know, I I don't really feel comfortable giving it to one of our, one of my patients. I just want to give it to anybody, you know, who needs it. So we matched her up with a kid because, you know, kidney disease affects children uh, disproportionately and um, she really wanted to start a revolution so she brought a publicist with her and it got all this attention when she donated this kidney to somebody she didn't know and the next day we got 50 calls of other people who wanted to do this
1: okay no and
0: um and so at that time we were like okay so how are we going to allocate these kidneys and we decided you know to continue to give them the children and then we ran out of children we transplanted our whole list basically of children mm-hmm. and then one night i just Got this idea that you know we could give that kidney to somebody who had a blood type or tissue type incompatible donor, and then that donor could give their kidney to somebody else who had an incompatible donor, and you could set up these um, chains um, or dominoes of transplants, and um, starting with you know one of these altruistic donors, and so that's what we did, and that's grown over the years. And now a thousand transplants a year come from living donors who um, receive their kidney through these um, chains of transplants. This Um, led
1: to an interesting distinction for you, a record. Tell us about that real quick.
0: Yeah. So uh, we, you know, we, we did the, the first, you know, two way domino and then three way, four way, all the way up to 10. Right. And, And at the time, you know, we when we initially started doing these, we felt like they all needed to be done simultaneously in case one of the donors, you know, backed out or something happened medically and you could break the chain. Um, and so you can imagine we would do these, you know, like when we would do a 10-way exchange, we would have to commandeer 20 operating rooms, you know, um, on a Sunday usually and... and um, you know do all these operations and um uh and so yeah one of the during one of those operations the guinness people uh called and said you know this sounds like a record number of transplants in (laughs) one day and came out and validated it and yeah so we uh, I, I was in the Guinness <laughs> book of world records in uh, 2010 for the most done. Cong- congratulations. <laughs> that, yeah, I'm I sure guess. that's on
2: your CV. Is it not?
0: It's the only thing that's ever impressed my kids <laughs> <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> about me anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I had a question here and I was thinking about this, uh, you know, preparing for the interview, the idea of the, the, um, altruistic donor. So say someone's listening to this right now, you know, maybe they read Peter Singer's book about effective altruism and they're, they're inspired and they're, you know, perhaps laid off right now. We're still in the middle of the pandemic and they've thought this through that, you know, they have two kidneys, they can live with one and they, you know, they want to donate to a perfectly perfect stranger. No, someone they've never, right. Met. If I were that person and I come into your office and I say, Dr. Montgomery, I thought this through, I want to do this. Bob, how does that actually work? What's the next step? Yeah, so
0: so there are about 200 of these folks a year who do this. Um, And so, you know, what I would do is we would make sure um, that that it was safe for them to donate. So they'd go through a battery of tests, um, including a psychological evaluation, and um, to be sure they, you know, have the support that they need and so on. And they've really thought this through. Um, you know, and, and accept the risks and the benefits, um, and so um, then there's a there's there's a a, uh, a group called the um, the uh, National uh, uh, Kidney Registry that that does the matching. Um, so they have you know they have computer algorithms that match these folks up to start these chains. And so then we would, you know, refer uh, the, the person into that, um, uh, you know, that registry and much like the bone marrow registry in a way. And, and then um, we would usually do their um, operation um, and ship then that their kidney would be shipped on a commercial airliner, uh, you know, when we took it out to another transplant center um that would um then do the the transplant it's a funny story because we did the first one we we were when we were doing all these swaps everyone was worried you know about this concept you know one of the benefits we felt of living donation is that you can have the donor and the recipient in adjacent rooms you know in the same hospital and the kidneys out of the body for a very short period of time now we've been shipping deceased donor kidneys because you had to because they would come out somewhere and, and, you know, and, and then they'd get allocated to whoever was next on the list. But the idea of shipping a, um, a, a live donor kidney, is, just felt like it was such a, you know, valuable thing. Somebody, you know, living who had put their life on the line. It's actually, the risk is pretty small. Um, uh, it's equivalent to driving a car for a year in terms of the risk of death, but still, you know, it's a big deal to donate a kidney. Um, and you know to ship it. So I actually flew out on a a, a jet, you know, a, 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 a private jet um, to do to sort of break the ice, to sort of you know show that this could be done um, in um, in the early 2000s, and and that started the whole thing. And then it went from that to commercial airliners, and now these kidneys are being shipped all over the country. <laughs> So the matches are done, you know, the matches are done in the best way uh, in terms of the, the match and, you know, um, particularly for these patients who have incompatible donors, some of them are really hard to match. And so, you know, these algorithms in, make the matches and then the organs are, are moved around the country.
1: Amazing. Well, Bob, as we're closing out here, it's kind of a big question to ask at the end here, but we'll see see what we can do here. When we look at organ shortages, um, you know, I'm looking here on the Department of Health and Human Services. So we're talking 112,000 people at, at this, as of March, uh, 2020 are waiting for uh, any number of organ transplants, whether it's heart or kidney or liver. Um, only 39,000 were performed in 2019. Yeah. 20 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant. Yeah. So, you know, simply put, think back to our old econ class in undergrad we're trying to get a supply and demand curve to cross somewhere.
0: And yeah, I mean,
1: we're, we're failing. If, you,
0: to, okay, if you were, if you were the CEO of a company and you could, you had a great product, but you could only deliver it to, you know, 20, 20% or 25% of the people who wanted it every year, that would be a failure. Right. Right.
1: And that, and that's what we're talking about. And, you know, yep. that equilibrium, you know, one, one, one thing a supply and demand curve does, of course, is it, answers a question about the data, and that's price. But price isn't, doesn't have the same relevance here because we don't allow organ sales in the US. And, and according to my research, I think there's only one country in the world that does, and that's Iran, believe it or not. Um, to, to kind of close things off here, in order to, to tackle this problem, whether we look at a free market approach, if we look at uh, logistical enhancements of getting organs where they need to be, technology, innovation, what what are you most optimistic about, Bob? What you've seen? Yeah.
0: So you know, in this case, you know, what we're we're talking about human lives and not you know, um, the bottom line for a company, and 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 we're also talking about something that has been voluntary, um, you know, and a system that um, actually works very well, but is unable to meet the need, and. So, you know, all these things that I've been talking about, the hepat- hepatitis C organs, the, uh, the, the domino transplants, the chains, you know, all these things that I've been involved in in my lifetime, I, I sort of think about, you know, they've made incremental increases in the number of organs available, but I sort of think about them as fossil fuel. You know, it's not the future. It's not... What we need is a renewable, sustainable source of organs. Mm. And I don't think you can achieve that by paying for organs. It, 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 it brings in a whole new set of issues. And where I think the future is sort of the wind and the solar of, you know, the future are bioartificial organs and xenotransplantation or organs from pigs. Wow that have been genetically um, modified to make them less um, likely to be rejected by a human. And so I'm spending a lot of my time now working on these two areas of uh, testing um, bioartificial organs and um, xenotransplant organs. And I think we're getting pretty close, actually, to doing... Some clinical trials. I think it's going to happen in the next few years. And to me, this is where the future is.
1: Wow. Interesting. Exciting. Uh, in the present right now, has COVID affected, I mean, you're in NYU. We all know what had happened in New York in the early uh, stages of this pandemic as it reached the U.S. Has this affected your practice and organ supply in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, I mean, during mean that, that, that surge, you know, we had uh, close to 7,000 COVID patients in our hospital, and we were, you know, transforming, you know, offices into ICU rooms and everything, and you can imagine under those circumstances, I mean, almost every bed in the hospital was filled with um, someone who, you know, had, who needed to be hospitalized, had severe enough COVID that they needed to be in the hospital, and there there was just no way we could do transplants at the same time, so we actually had to, um, essentially shut down, we still kept a few patients listed, patients that we thought, you know, the risk benefit ratio of being transplanted under those circumstances, you know, still favored a transplant. And so we, you know, we were closed down through um, uh, April um, and a part of uh, March and then um, uh, started to reopen in May. Um, and, uh, in June, we actually did the number of transplants we normally do in a month, mm-hmm. um, across all the organs. And wow. so we're back really, you know, um, to where we were. Um, but of course in the Sun Belt now, you know, they're going through something similar to what we went through. Right. Not quite as bad because it seems like the, a lot of the people who are getting infected are younger and, uh, and, you know, less high risk, but- Still, their ICUs are full, yep. and um, so yeah. I mean, it's been it's been really um, a you know fascinating and horrific uh, time, um, and um, you know it's it's amazing how much we've learned about uh, how to take care of these patients and and how much the care has improved as a result. How about that, yeah. well, Bob.
1: We are right at the hour, so as promised, we're gonna wrap it up here, even though we could keep talking for another hour easily. Um, Just to end things, I'm going to put a lot of links up on our website to some of the resources we were pointing at today and discussing. But if folks out there want to learn a little bit more about you, your program, and some of the innovations that are coming around the pipeline, um, where are some good places to point them?
0: Well, um, you know, certainly they can look at the um, the UNOS. They type in UNOS that's our uh system of you know our the organization that handles all the allocation they have a lot of good information in there you can look at the NYU transplant uh, website which you know it talks about some of the work we're doing in xenotransplantation and um bioartificial organs um and um you know i think um uh, another thing about transplantation, which is unique, is there's something called the SRTR, which shows um, the, you know, the outcomes and the quality metrics for every transplant program in the country. So mm-hmm. that's out there; it's uh, you know easily uh, findable. SRTR, and um, you know, it's a good thing to know when you're you're, you're you need a transplant. Yeah, no kidding.
1: We'll put the links up to that on the webpage as well. And, um, Bob, thanks so much for carving out some time with us today. That's sure. Man, it's fascinating. Uh, like I said, we would have kept talking here, but I know you got to get going and, um, everyone listening, that's, um, Dr. Robert Montgomery at NYU and wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. I'll see you here next time.
2: Thanks for joining us on peer spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes Join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.